0: Okay, um, I'm Abigail Williams from St Peter's College, and I'm going to be talking in this lecture about Jonathan Swift, and in particular, I'm going to be talking about Swift in relation to a poem called The Lady's Dressing Room. The reason I chose this poem um, and how I think it might relate to Swift and the ways in which we can think about Swift is that so Swift, Jonathan Swift, is writing at the beginning of the 18th century. He's um, a satirist. He's most famous for being the author of Gulliver's Travels. And I think that everybody says quite blithely, oh, Jonathan Swift, he's a satirist. Yeah, he writes satires. We know that he's writing works which are often parodying or criticising contemporary society or religious debates, um, particular individuals. But although we can quite often see that he is satirising things, it's not always clear what exactly he's trying to do with that. And I think the poem that I'm going to talk about now is quite a good example of how difficult it, well, how our attempts to try to work out what it is that Swift might be saying um, are not as straightforward as they seem. And also that thinking about the whole idea of great writers inspire, that looking at the reception history or what other people have made Swift do, how they've rewritten his poem, shows us the ways in which they've made him mean, as well as what we think he might mean or the ambiguities there within his satire. So... Um, looking at this, oh look, there's a picture of Jonathan Swift looking very proper, his properness and respectability in that uh, picture is going to be important Okay, proper Jonathan Swift Um, thinking about this this poem The Lady's Dressing Room, written in 1730 it was one of Swift's most popular poems during the course of the 18th century it was republished lots and lots of times in different formats and it was also rewritten and imitated by many other writers which is what I'm going to be talking about later on So, The Lady's Dressing Room is a satire, um, and it takes the form of a young man called Strephon going into his beloved Celia's dressing room and wandering around it, and then talking about the things that he finds in there. Um, It starts off from the understanding that Celia is a woman who likes getting ready. So, the poem begins um, by telling us quite how much time Celia spends getting ready. Five hours... And who can do it less in? By haughty Celia spent in dressing. The goddess from her chamber issues Arrayed in lace, brocade and tissues. So she takes ages to get ready. She leaves her room. Strephon goes in. He starts to wander around fondly. As he wanders around, he discovers the things that she's left behind and is more and more disgusted by what he finds. He doesn't find rose petals and puppy dogs. And candy floss, or whatever the 18th century equivalent was, he finds really gross things. So, this is a description of what he finds. He, as he becomes more and more horrified, but oh, it turned poor Strephon's bowels when he beheld and smelt the towels, begummed, bes- bemattered, and beslimed, with dirt and sweat and earwax grimed. No object Strephon's eye escapes. Here, petticoats in frowsy heaps, nor be the handkerchiefs forgot, all varnished oil with snuff and snot. So we get, we get this picture of Strephon wandering around, more and more grossed out by what he's finding. Um, the detail becomes more and more intense um, until we get to the point where... And in some ways you can see that um, the attraction of this poem is a little bit like some of the attractions of... Um, Uh, kind of contemporary magazines which take a kind of beautiful celebrity and then say look at her cellulite, look at her ankles, look at the sweat patches. So it takes something beautiful and then unbeautifies it and that's part of what's going on in this poem. Um, So we have Strephon becoming disillusioned, his goddess is becoming a mortal, a mortal not immortal, um, until we get to the point where we're told thus finishing his grand survey the swain disgusted slunk away repeating in his amorous fits, Oh, Celia, Celia, Celia! And I have no need to say the last word. Um, So we see Strephon revolted by what he's found. Um, And I guess in terms of how we read this poem, there are kind of interesting questions there. So one way in which we might read this poem is there's an exercise in misogyny that it picks up on a long tradition of misogynistic satire, which centres on the fact that scratch the surface, women look nice on the outside, they're all corrupt and dirty underneath, that there's a kind of mismatch between what you see and what you get. And you could see this poem in that vein as just taking off the surface and saying, yuck, God, that's revolting underneath all this stuff. Um, But there's another way in which you could read it. If we look at how the poem actually ends, it ends with the narrator saying, He soon would learn to think like me, and bless his ravished eyes to see such order, from confusion sprung, such gaudy tulips raised from dung. So the idea there is that actually the person being satirised, the thing being mocked and criticised, isn't Celia, but Strephon. It's him being an idiot for expecting women to be made of, um, to be perfect and to not to be real human bodies. And that's the thing that's being attacked. That's the thing that's really ridiculous, not her, but him. And in that way, you can see it as a kind of assault on the idealisation of women in, in poetic tradition. The idea that they are put on pedestals and they have to be goddesses or they don't count, that actually they're just real women, we're all real bodies, and there's a kind of matter of factness about it which undercuts um, that, and so it becomes a sort of satire on idealisation of women and on, um, on, on literary traditions that perpetuate that idealisation. I guess the, kind of, the question that... You might have though about the whole effect of the satire is whether actually at the end you're left with tulips or left with dung, whether the whole revolting effect of the earwax and the dirty toenail clippings and the powder and sweat and dandruff and lice, whether all that stuff doesn't actually overwhelm the final point so that we're so grossed out by what we've seen that we can't rehabilitate um, this vision of Celia within the poem. So, it sets up these two... There are two different ways of looking at it, and it's not really clear which, which one Swift meant or what we should do with this. Um, but one way of thinking about what, how Swift is made to mean something or how this poem is made to mean something um, is by looking at what other people did with it. So I'm going to turn now to look at what somebody called Lady Mary Wortley-Montagu did with it. She was an aristocratic woman writer living at the same time. New Swift, didn't like him much. And she wrote a satire, which was a response. She rewrites this scenario. And in this scenario, um, Swift, is, uh, Swift is himself. He's the man going into the room, and he's going to visit a prostitute. So um, in this quotation, the Reverend Lover is Swift. Um, and this describes him um, looking, uh, looking at the woman he sees um, and then being unable to perform. The Reverend Lover, with surprise, peeps in her bubbies and her eyes and kisses both and tries and tries. The evening in this hellish play, beside his guineas thrown away, provoked the priest to that degree. He swore, the fault is not in me. Your damn clothesstool, so, that's the chamber pot, so near my nose, your dirty smock and stinking toads would make a Hercules as tame as any bow that you can name. I'll be revenged, you saucy queen, replies the disappointed Dean. I'll so describe your dressing room. The very Irish shall not come. She answered short, I'm glad you'll write will furnish paper when I... Sh-. So we can see here that this is turned around to main, mean something else. It reverses what is seen as the kind of misogyny in Swift's original poem and makes it into an attack on Swift himself and s- locates that misogyny, that perceived misogyny, within Swift's own physical, personal failings. So there's that response. And then I'm going to close by talking about... Briefly about another response that I didn't know about, and I found last week um, and liked because it redepicts the ladies' dre- or the dressing. It redepicts the scene of the kind of room in chaos and confusion within a college room, within an within an Oxbridge room, um, presumably an undergraduate's room. Um, and one of the reasons why I like it is because my own room is, pretty, room is pretty messy, as you can see here. This is my room, which is not as disgusting as Celia's room, but but disordered. Um, And then here we've got the scene of this poem with its little picture. So this is describing what uh, a college room looks like um, um, when when it's visited while a kind of debauched um, undergraduate lives there. And what this poem does is to take the same idea of kind of a jumbling up of objects those jumbled up objects are used in Swift's poem to talk about to talk about the kind of well the gap between idealization and physical reality and what they used to do here is to talk about a kind of moral confusion between somebody whose life's so kind of chaotic whose moral order is so skewed that he can't quite um, tell what's important and what's not so just to give you a brief example of that um, here we've got a little description of some of the things that are found in the room. So here we've got this descri- it's anonymous description of a college room in imitation of the ladies' dressing room, which comes out about five years after Swift's. And it describes here Tillotson and French romances and pious south with country dances. Here lay a treatise on the, the clap, a dirty band and woolen cap, a galley pot and box of pills, a remedy for private ills, foul pipes and mugs together lay, with box of best virginia. And what's being described here is that there are these collections of sermons um, mixed up with um, French romances, seen as a really lowbrow form. Um, There's stuff which alludes to the venereal disease that the student has caught um, alongside the um, pipes for smoking and mugs and tobacco. So this is being used to tell a different story. This is less about men are all disgusting on the inside and perfect on the outside but more just about the kind of confusion of values that seems to be suggested by what this person finds in this man's in this man's room so I think to conclude what I've hoped to show is some of the ways in which um, I don't know whether it would be fair to it would be strictly accurate to say that Lady Mary Wortley Montague was exactly inspired by Swift's poem but that the whole act of reception and response provides a way into some of the interpretative questions that we're that we're looking at and developing when we look at a writer like Swift. Thank you.